We're in Galatians chapter 6 tonight, and I've got multiple uh, books open up here. I brought my fairly new Galatians study guide that I got a couple weeks ago, uh, John MacArthur, that I used a little bit last week, and I'm just going to read very little out of that. We did make another trip down to Scripture Truth yesterday, and it was not even my idea to go. So I'm very proud of my wife. <clears throat> there was a certain book that she saw down there. She thought about ordering it, but she knew how much I like to support them, so she asked if we could run down there on Tuesday, which was yesterday, her day off. And uh, I was so excited. Yeah, very excited. And it worked out pretty good to where I, 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 uh, I could go, and when I, when I got down there, of course, I was talking with the guys that worked down there, and I ended up with, well, I was asked by my mother if only one person bought a book yesterday. Well, that's a silly question. So, yeah, I got fussed at because I bought three three different things. And then I've got three little booklets for free because I t told uh, Greg how much that I appreciated the A.P. Gibbs booklets that he gave me last time, and I've been looking through them, and I really liked them. And he said, well, he asked if I knew M.R. Dahan. You ever heard of M.R. Dahan? He was a medical doctor, and he ended up, being, uh, ended up being a Bible teacher. He left the medical profession and, and uh, preached the gospel, and he's, I got these little booklets here. I had not heard of him before. Now, this little booklet is from William McDonald, who is the one who did the Believer's Bible Commentary. So this one actually has a date in it. And it is from 1956. And it's just a little booklet on Think of Your Future. Nice little booklet here. i really um, glad to have that. And then these two booklets here. This is booklet number three and booklet number four. So be on the lookout for number one and number two. And there might be a number five, six, I don't know. But uh, he, this guy is most famous for the book that he wrote called The Chemistry of the Blood. He's a medical doctor, and he talked about the blood. I think this book is, comes from a, maybe a medical perspective of, of uh, the crucifixion and, and shedding of blood and all that. Well, that would be a good book to get, right? So be on the lookout for that, <laughs> the chemistry of the blood. But I am going to read, I am going to read some out of that little booklet number three from M. R. Dahan. You know they're good when they go by the first two initials, right? But there's plenty, there's plenty of others that don't do that. But I just like that. I always, it always catches my eye. And so. We're, uh, so in uh, Galatians chapter 6, we started, we just barely got into the first few verses last week, and I'm going to read what John MacArthur said in his little study guide here. He says, the end of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches carries the same weight of seriousness and urgency as the rest of it. Both the beginning and end commend readers to God's grace and express Paul's deep concern for the spiritual welfare of those to whom he was writing. But Paul took no time for the personal amenities found in most of his other letters. It is almost as if the courier were standing at the door waiting for Paul to finish writing so he could rush the letter on his way. Following brief instructions about restoring a sinning brother, <clears throat> and talking about the spiritual law of sowing and reaping, 
Paul contrasted those who would glory in the flesh with those who glory only in the cross. Except for the closing benediction, which is verse 18, verses 11 to the end are largely a parting salvo against the Judaizers whose heretical activities prompted the letter in the first place. So he is basically just making sure that you understood what the letter was about, the way he ends it. Um, he, he talks a little bit about the, the reaping and the sowing. And then Paul talks about the cross. Paul gloried in the cross because Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the source of his and every believer's righteousness and acceptance before God bringing an end to the hopeless frustration of pursuing God through works. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Him being Christ. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. Uh, Christians honor and praise the cross because Christ's sacrifice there provided redemption and eternal life, making the cross the supreme symbol of the gospel, the religion of divine accomplishment. And then he goes into breaking down the uh, verses, verse by verse. And uh, last week that was very helpful because we had that, uh, the list of the fruit and uh, it helped us out with that. But I'm going to not read out of this one. But let's read out of the Bible for just a little bit. And then we will, I will uh, expound on it or read a little bit out of the Believer's Bible Commentary. And we read a little bit of it last week, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and reread. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, this is uh, Galatians 6 verse 1, Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And, you know, what we said last week was, we have to be very careful in that we are human, just like the person who has fallen into some type of a fault. We could also, and we're always looking out for each other. Um, you know, we, we, we're instructed to put on all of the armor so that we won't fall, so that we, we won't have these things happen to us. And, but, there's, but there's nothing for the back. All that armor, the breastplate, the helmet of salvation, the shield, the sword, all these things that we're supposed to put on, but there's nothing for the back. And at the very end of that story of all the armor, armor, we see that we are to pray for one another and watch out for each other. We're to have each other's back because we're supposed to be on the offensive with that sword. So all the other pieces of the armor are defensive, but we're facing our enemy. We're not running from. You don't need anything for your back when you're fighting, but the sneaky enemy may come around and try to get you from the backside because the enemy is not as brave so we watch for each other's back, and that's with prayer. And we also go to our brethren who has been caught up in a fault. We go to them. We see it, and we go to them, and we minister to them. But we don't do it because we're better. We understand that we could fall as well, and that same person may one day come back and, and correct us. So we need to have that spirit of meekness. Bear ye, this is talking to each and every one of us, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? What is burdens? Burdens refers to failures, temptations, testings, and trials. Instead of standing off at a distance and criticizing, 
we should fly to the side of a brother in trouble or distress and help him in every possible way. The law of Christ includes all the commandments of the Lord Jesus for his people found in the New Testament. It may be summarized by the commandment that you love one another. We fulfill this when we bear one another's burdens. The law of Christ is far different from that of Moses. Moses' law promised life for obedience, but gave no power to obey, and could only encourage obedience by the fear of punishment. The law of Christ, on the other hand, is loving instruction for those who already have life. Believers are enabled to keep its precepts by the power of the Holy Spirit, and their motivation is love to Christ. Why do you do the good things that you do? Why do you not do the bad things you could do? What's, what's, what is causing you to live a, a good Christian life? What's, what, is it fear of punishment, or is it the love you have for Christ? For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. We are all made out of the same dirt. <laughs> yeah, we're just made, formed from the dirt of the earth. But the Lord breathed the breath of life into us. But we're all the same. We're, we're really no different. We're humans. We all can fail. Four. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So, you know, a lot of these verses going through the end of this can be confusing, hard to figure out. So basically, what this is saying is... I see this a whole lot. We tend to look at how everybody else is doing instead of what we're really doing. And if we see somebody not doing so well, then we feel a little bit better about how we're doing. And it's almost like you like it when people fail. That then the pressure's not on you. But this is saying, quit looking at how everybody else is doing and look at how you're doing. It says, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And now the next verse sounds like it just totally contradicts what we just read back in 2. Because in 2 it says, bear one another's burden, but in 5 it says, for every man shall bear his own burden. But what that's talking about is, what it, we just read in 4, is one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you can't blame everybody else for what you did wrong. It's going to be, <laughs> you've got to answer for yourself. So at the end of things, you're the one who's responsible. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. So what does that mean? The word communicate in the King James Bible means how you live your life. It also could mean uh, giving. So this, this could be interpreted as um, take care of the person who teaches. And that could be in many different ways. And then it's then in seven, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So are you sowing into righteous things? Are you uh, you know, it used to be that the the I don't even like to call it a profession, but when a person because if you're called to be a preacher and that's your job, it used to be, back in the day, the most respected occupation of any. It's not anymore at all. It's nowhere near like what it used to be. <clears throat> and you hear all kinds of people say that, you know, it's just not really that important. 
and all that. So it's been downplayed, that, that occupation of being a pastor. So do you support the person who teaches, basically, is what this is saying. Um, and that can be radio ministry or TV ministry, but be very careful in what you give your money to. There's a whole lot of scams out there that use God's name to profit. And they're the ones that are on TV that are very manipulative and can... I mean, they, they come up with some of the weirdest stuff. They'll take something out of Scripture, like a prayer cloth, and then act like they have one, and they'll send it to you, and you, you give them a certain amount of money, they'll send it to you. They've already prayed over it, so when you get it, you put it on you, and then, you know, it's just all kinds of crazy. So they just pick things out of Scripture and say, see here, it's in Scripture, and they read off the verses and then they make it into some new thing where you're going to get some special blessing. Uh, I, I've even seen it, that same thing used for uh, another money-making thing where it shows on TV where this guy can't go see his brother and they have these uh, little uh, tiny blankets and you send one blanket to the one brother in another country and he puts it on him and then you, they send them in the mail and swap them so you can hold the blanket that the other person, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, think about, you know, you can, you can buy a star and name it after somebody. I mean, some of the crazy stuff that people will come up with to make money. <clears throat> For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So <clears throat> put your efforts into spiritual things. Remember, this is talking about law and grace. That's, that's what we've been reading about, studying about all through Galatians. Think about the things you do, works, and ends up being works of the flesh and that list of really bad things, but then the fruit of the Spirit. So we need to be thinking on spiritual things, and those spiritual things are what lead to life everlasting. Verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So what that's saying is, it's just talked about reaping and sowing, right? So that could be if you go out to your garden, you've prepped the soil, you put seeds in, you covered it up, put a little water on it, you go home, you go back to the house, you go to sleep, next morning you wake up, you grab your basket, and you go out there and you're going to pick. Well, it says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There's a, there's a time that's going to go. You, you, there's people, well, I'm not going to do it because it's going to take three months before it, it comes in, so I'm just not going to do it. But look at what you get out of the efforts that you do. You put in a certain number of seeds in a row, and what you get out of it is way more. You just had to wait for it, for it to come about. So these things that we do, uh, people just want instant. Today, in today's society, it's now. What's that? Exactly. The microwave generation. We, got, we want it now. I, 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 there was another commercial that I saw a while back. Uh, this hefty dude was going to the gym, and you see him on the scale. He's looking at the scale. He gets off scale, and he goes, and he does a couple little things real quick. He does a couple jumping jacks, and he runs right back over the scale. He gets up on there, and he looks at it, and he's just disgusted, and he hits it. He smacks it. And I, I remember when Michelle saw that the first time, she just fell over laughing, you know, because you know, he did like a 30-second workout, and he ran back to the scales, and he got on it, and there was no difference. <clears throat> God's timing is good. Uh, Ten, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are 
of the household of faith. So we are to do good to everybody, but especially to those people who are part of our church family. And it's not just this church, but it's other people who are uh, believers that may go to a, the church down the road. We are to be very good with them. All right, that's 10. I'm going to read what uh, William McDonald said here in the Believer's Bible Commentary because it has uh, something that John Wesley said. Uh, the household of faith, so we're to especially uh, do good for them, includes all who are saved without regard to denominations or divisions. Our kindness is not to be limited to believers, but is to be shown to them in a special way. It is not negative uh, how little harm, but positive how much good we can do that is to be our objective. John Wesley said, uh, he, he said, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. <clears throat> Verse 11, you see how large, we talked about this several weeks ago, because I kind of went to this uh, verse to talk about how this was um, so important to Paul to write this letter through the Galatians that he wrote it himself. He didn't dictate it like he did all the others, but he, he actually did this one himself. And why did he do it? Because there was no one there to do it. He just was in a spot and he had to do it himself. And if he did have that eye trouble, it would be large letters. He didn't write large letters because of the seriousness of Galatians. I think he wrote large letters because he's the one that was actually writing it. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers wanted to make a good showing in the flesh by building up a large group of followers. They could do this by insisting on circumcision. People are often quite willing to observe rites and ceremonies as long as they are not required to change their habits. It is common today to build up a large church membership by lowering these standards. Paul sees through the insincerity of these false teachers and accuses them of seeking to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. The cross signifies the condemnation of the flesh and its efforts to please God. The cross spells death for the fleshly nature and its noblest efforts. The cross means separation from evil. Therefore, men hate the glorious message of the cross and persecute those who preach it. <clears throat> yes, there is all kinds of people who... You know, the, they, they'll go to church, and you see it in certain denominations, uh, where you can live however you want to live. You come to church for mass or confession, whatever, to take care of all that. So if you have a church that has a whole lot of rituals and those types of things, that's a church that sinners will go to, people who don't want to change, and they think they can fix it by just showing up. So we, we see that. We see that a lot. We see people who think that they can live any way they want, but then they'll come to church and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and that is very wrong. Very wrong. We need to be different. We need to be the church out there, everywhere we are, whether we're at our job, at our home, no matter where we go, we are to be people who have been crucified with Christ, and we're not trying to keep the law, but we're living because of the grace that we have received 
and that should be evident in everything we do. 13, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They just want the numbers. Uh, I've told you all about the church camp that I went to back when I was, I think I was 12. And, you know, there were meetings every single night all the kids that were there, it was so many kids, hundreds and hundreds of kids. And we would go into those meetings and there would be some very emotional message. Uh, maybe a film was shown and you would just really tug, tug at your heartstrings. And, and at the end of the night, they would have this altar call and all these kids would come up. And then I remember I told you how Every night, I saw the same kids get up and go up front all through the whole week. And there was one person that I knew really well that was there. I went with that person. They're the ones that invited me to go to that church camp, that, that family. And he, I, I watched him two or three times get up to go up there and give his life to the Lord. I can promise you, he did not. <laughs> he did not, not one, two, or three times. He didn't do any. He just did it because he knew he should. He was trying to fix himself by what they were preaching about and talking about. I just remember it wasn't a whole lot of preaching, preaching, and Bible teaching. It was more of emotions because they wanted to brag about how many people got saved. Whenever, whoever that person was that did the message that night, they wanted to go back to their home church and say, oh, I had a hundred people come up and give their life to the Lord and brag about it. It's the same, same principle as this. <clears throat> 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save, or accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Now, that's confusing. This is Paul talking. And you're saying, well, the world is crucified to Paul. Well, well, what he's saying here, because of what Jesus did, and that he's not glorying in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that means that the world is, he's separate from the world now. The world has been done away with, and he, according to the world, has been done away with. So the worldly people that he used to hang out with, he don't hang out with them anymore. That's all that's saying there. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. You've got to be a new person. The old man is crucified, but we've been raised to walk in newness of life, you are a new creature when this is real, when it really happens. 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now, he is talking to, remember, Paul always has a heart for his Jewish brethren. And he's just making sure that they, you know, they're the ones, because of being Jewish, they're the ones that are trying to make everybody follow these Jewish customs. 17, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. There were people also, remember, being in bondage and being set free. We, that's, that goes right along with all of this as well. The mark of the body, if he was in bondage, he would have the branding of whoever owned him. So when people see how you live, they, that's your branding. You, you are branded by the father of lies if you're living for the devil. People see it. But Paul actually had marks on his body where he was beaten. I'd say with the stone, all the stones that hit him, and they thought he died, 
that there were some scars on his face and head. All the times he had been whipped, the times where he had been shipwrecked, the time where the poisonous snake bit him on the arm, all the things that he went through, he showed. You could look at him and see he had been through some really rough stuff. He bore the marks. In 18, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, I just noticed something recently that, and I'm talking within, within probably an hour. <laughs> That's pretty recent, isn't it? <clears throat> when you look at, I started flipping through all of the very last verses of all of Paul's letters. Grace is, in, now in Romans, if you go look in Romans, you're going to say, oh no, it's not there. But back up to 24. There's, remember, there's two different endings for Romans. And the first ending is 24, and that's where grace is. And then it says, amen. And then it was almost like there was a, oh, I forgot, it's P.S., and then he did a few more verses, and then he said, amen again. Well, the first amen, look at that verse, number 24. And look at all, you got Romans, then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. You got Galatians, you got Ephesians. What is it? Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, number one and number two. Even, even some of the other ones that he wrote after that. Go to everything that Paul wrote and go to the last verse and see if you can find grace there. There's one where it's the second to the last, but they could have easily made that one verse. But it's, but it's so close to being the last one. You'll see one that's the second to the last. But you go to James. <laughs> You're not seeing it there. First uh, Peter, Second Peter. I don't think you're going to see it. Jude, nope. First, second, third John, uh-uh. But, oh, and where I got this from is this little booklet that I got for free yesterday. And it's in the title of this little booklet, I didn't say, say what the title was, but it's Law or Grace. And it's like, well, how did they know I've been going through Galatians? <laughs> I didn't tell them I was going through Galatians. And they just happened to have these things sitting back there. I walked in and said something about how I was so appreciative of the A.P. Gibb booklets that he gave me. And he said, well, you know what? I got three more back here. You want them? They're from uh, M.R. DeHaan. And I'm like, and he thought I would know who DeHaan was. And I'm going, but they're booklets. Yeah, I'll take them. And so I started reading this one. And it says, four pictures of the law. So there's four different uh, teachings in this little tiny booklet. Four different teachings. And I open it up, and, the, and it starts out, it says, the last word of the Old Testament is, does anybody know what the very last word of the Old Testament is? Huh? Something to do with the law. The very last verse of the Old Testament, the very last word in the last verse says, anybody there yet? <laughs> Y'all are looking, looking, looking. Curse. Curse. She found it. Curse. Curse. But you look at all, oh, so you go to Revelation, the very last words of the Bible, you'll see grace there. It's talking about grace. So if you're under the Old Testament, if you're in the law, you're cursed. Because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're depending on the Old Testament and the law to fix you, you're doomed. Because if you're there, there's no hope for you. You're cursed. But... If that very law has, has shown you you need a Savior and it's turned you and you're looking for the Savior and you find the Savior, then you're going to get the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's the 
last verse of the good book, the Holy Scriptures that we have. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And pretty much every letter that Paul writes, you're going to see that at the end of it. In some way, shape, or form, you're going to see that. thought that was very interesting. I just, I, here I was flipping back and forth through all the different letters that Paul wrote, and I'm seeing that. This, I'm reading out of this little booklet. How difficult it is for man to learn that the ministry of the law was to curse the transgressor and could only bless those who kept its precepts perfectly and continuously, since there has never been an Adam's son who was able to keep God's law perfectly, the law could not bless anyone but only curse all. Some of the difficulty arises from the fact that so many believe that every time the word law appears in the Bible, it refers to the Ten Commandments. This, resu this results in utter confusion. In only a bare minimum of instances does the term law refer exclusively to, to the Ten Commandments. This little booklet was done in March of 1965. And this guy did a radio Bible class. <clears throat> this uh, Dahan. His last name... <clears throat> So his first initial, M, then R, and then his last name is D, E, and then capital H, A, A, N. In the great majority of cases, you, you're going to want to take notes on this. In the great majority of cases, it refers to, this is talking about the, when, when it says law in, in the Bible, just the word law. In a great majority of cases, it refers to the Word of God or parts of that Word. We give, as an example, the 19th Psalm, which is an exaltation of the Word of God. David uses many different terms to describe this Word, including the word law. Now here's verses uh, 7 through 9 of Psalm 19. It says, The law... Of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, we've already explained that the law can't convert you, but the word of the the, the everything in the Bible, because we see Jesus throughout the Old Testament. It's God's laws, his testimony, his statutes, his commandment, his fear, his judgments, all of those things work to the converting of the soul. All right, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 19. In these verses, as, the, as in the whole psalm, David is extolling the Word of God and not only the Ten Commandments. Notice he calls the Word of God, and I read them all, the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, the judgments. All these are different names for the Word of God and, and have no specific reference to the Ten Commandments. In the vast majority of cases where the word law is used, it refers to the Scriptures, just basically the Scriptures. Jesus himself spoke of the books of Moses as the law, as distinguished from the prophets. You get that in Matthew 7, verse 12. The word law is used in the Bible more than 500 times, three, about 300 in the Old Testament and over 200 in the New. In most cases, these uh, no specific reference to the tables of the law. We mention this to emphasize the absolute necessity of determining what is meant by the law when we read it. We must determine whether it refers, number one, to the scriptures as a whole, 
or number two, the five books of Moses, or number three, to the whole body of ceremonial and civil and moral laws as given in Exodus and Leviticus, or number four, to the tables of the law written by the finger of God. In every case, a study of the context will determine which meaning is in view. As an illustration, we would refer you to a little-known passage in Scripture. It is found in the second Corinthian epistle, epistle. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You might want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I read all of chapter 3 earlier. And it goes along with Galatians perfectly. Now, if you only read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you would say the law needs to be never even looked at again. That's why we had so many people from years gone by that would have a New Testament and the Psalms only. You know, the Gideons did that for many years. They would, they would just do the New Testament. People would say, oh, the law does not matter to us anymore. We don't even need to read it. you got people like that. I'm not one of them. I know the whole Bible is very important. But if you only read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you would be ready to take all of the Old Testament out of your Bible and push it aside. You would be perfectly happy with the New Testament and the Psalms, and that's it. Because we can't just pick one chapter and read that one chapter and neglect everything else. Okay? But it really backs up Galatians really, really well. Now, I'm going to be, you can follow along in your Bible, and I'm going to read what he's, he has in this little booklet. It is, uh, may I urge you, I just did, <laughs> to turn there. Have your Bible open and check every statement I make, and you judge if it is the Scripture indeed. That's what he says. We begin in verse 2. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Isn't that neat? For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, which that means the Ten Commandments, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Now, he's, he, this, now he makes a comment. After this introduction, Paul proceeds to give us an amazing contrast between the perfect law of God and His perfect grace. He says, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away? Whoa! That's uh, 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7. Then he says... Before we, before we read further, notice that Paul is now speaking about the law in its narrowest sense as referring to the Ten Commandments. Notice he identifies what he means by the law. He is talking about the ministration of death written and engraven in stones. The reference is unmistakable. He is speaking of the two tables of the law. He is contrasting this law with grace. Remember, he is now talking about the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, and calls it the letter of the law, and then adds that the letter of the law killeth. The law is a ministration of death, and it was accompanied by glory, but this glory was to be done away. Again, we remind you, Paul is talking about the law, the ministration of death, written and engraved and engraven in stones. 
All right, now listen to 11 or verse 9, and then he skips over to 11 and 16. For if the ministration of condemnation, the law, which in brackets, the law, be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For if that which is done away, the glory of the law, was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds, Israel's minds, in, in parentheses, were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Uh, here Paul adds to his description of the law. We have already seen that that the law gave the letter, not the spirit. The letter killeth. The law was a ministration of death. It was accompanied by a temporary glory. To these four, Paul now adds, the law was a ministration of condemnation. That's in verse 9. This condemnation was to be done away. It was to be abolished. The law was a veil that prevented approach to the presence of God. This last ministry of the law as a separating veil gathers up the whole purpose and ministry of the law. It was a veil, a curtain, separating sinners from God. Sin and disobedience must be removed before God can accept the sinner. The law is so perfect that it must condemn the least infraction of its perfect standard. It demands the death of the transgressor and therefore stands as a barrier between the sinner and God. It is a veil, and that veil of blindness is upon everyone who seeks by his own works or by his own obedience to the law to make himself acceptable to God. That veil must be taken away. This, of course, sinful man cannot do. It can only be done by one, capital O, one, who is sinless himself and able to pay for the sin of another. This was accomplished by Jesus when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Here, he met the perfect demands of God's holy law, paid his penalty, and removed the barrier and the veil for all who will receive him. To all others the veil remains, and the law continues to be for them the ministration of death and condemnation. So he, he goes on to talk about how in Matthew 27, 51, how the veil was rent from the top down to the bottom. Now that we uh, can come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace, to help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. And then uh, he talks about 1 Timothy 1, 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. The vital question is, are you a righteous man or unrighteous? If you are righteous, the law has no dread for you. Since you have no righteousness of your own, you must turn to another even Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. <clears throat> now he has a whole list of the contrast between uh, uh, law and grace. He says, the law prohibits us from coming to God. Grace invites us to come as we are. Remember, this was written, what I say, 1965? The law condemns the sinner. Grace redeems us. The law says, do this and live. Grace says, it is done. The law says, try. Grace says, it is finished. The law curses the sinner. Grace blesses the believer. The law slays the sinner. Grace saves him. 
The law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens the mouth in praise to God. The law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst. That's a good one. The law says, pay up what you owe. Grace says, it is already paid. The law says, the wages of sin is death. Grace says, the gift of God is eternal life. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Grace says, believe and live. The law reveals man's sin. Grace atones for his sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Grace provides redemption from sin. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law demands obedience. Grace gives power to obey. The law was written on stone. Grace is written in... We're preaching the same gospel today as he did in 1965. And he got it from somebody who preached before that. And we've just been carrying it on. I like reading what people who have gone before have done. I like collecting it. My wife does not like me collecting them. But, hey, I'm imperfect. I got problems, like everybody else. Pray for me. My truck just turns right and goes toward Fincastle all on its own. It's trained to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Father, we thank you for these Wednesday nights that we can get into your word, study your word, and just be better able, better equipped to live the Christian life. And Father, as we learn more about you, we love you more and more. You have made it to where we can trust in Jesus and be taken out of bondage, live in liberty. Father, I pray that we would not be people who are trying to obey out of fear, but who love to obey out of love for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.